Let me pray for us, and we'll get started in the book of Hebrews. Father, thank you for uh, the, the ability that we have uh, for, for everything that you've provided, which not only serves for our comfort and for our good generally, but brings us to this place today, that we woke up this morning, that there was a new day that you had made, that we had breath in our lungs, that we were healthy and able to rise up out of our beds and come to be in this place, that you've provided this facility for us to meet in. And in the midst of all of this, you've given us your Son, the living Word, and the written Word of God by which the Spirit speaks to us, your people, and you meet us here. Father, we give thanks for all of these things, and we pray that the time we have together, uh, these next few moments, Father, that, uh, that we would, uh, all of us, have our gaze directed to Christ, uh, and in so doing, we would find Him uh, lovely above all things. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the things I told you I wanted to do in this study was uh, as often as I was able to recommend books to you. And, uh, and so for those who weren't here last week, I'm going to uh, mention this one again briefly. It's, uh, it's called A Christian's Pocket Guide to Jesus Christ, written by Mark Jones. Who's, uh, um, he got his Ph.D. working in the Puritans. Uh, his mentor was J.I. Packer, and, uh, and he's a very well-respected theologian, A uh, Christian's Pocket Guide to Jesus Christ. And he just gives you a quick introduction to that person of Christ and how we think about it, what Scripture has to say about it, and the work of Christ. And so, very, very helpful. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's, it's written for the layperson, so it's not really difficult. As you can see, it's not much of a book in terms of size. Uh, and though the truth may lead you to uh, to spontaneously worship Christ. It's not written to be a devotional per se. Nonetheless, it's an excellent starting point. If you, if you don't feel like you're well-equipped in being able to say this is who Christ is, uh, this is what Christ has done, this little book is a fantastic place to start. Uh, this week, I want to recommend uh, a book by a Puritan. Now, I, I don't recommend Puritans to you often, and it's not because the content isn't wonderful, uh, but it's a bit like mining for gold uh, with the Puritans. That is, there is a lot of digging, a lot of hard work. Uh, the gold is never someplace easy to get to, uh, and the, the Puritans, they use a lot of words. Uh, many of them we don't use anymore, so there's just a lot of effort that has to go into reading the Puritans. Now, when you find the gold, it is spectacular, right? Uh, they're, they're amazing. What, uh, what we have in this volume is they've actually taken a part of this Puritan's work. His name is John Flavel, uh, F-L-A-V-E-L, uh, and they have pulled uh, a portion out of a larger work, and they've titled it Christ and His Threefold Office. Uh, they've also done a little bit of work. Uh, it's, it's not every word that he used. They've, uh, they've taken it and boiled it down for us. Uh, to make it more accessible. And, uh, and if you're doing historical theology, this isn't the, the copy you want to read, but if you're looking to know Christ better, if you're looking to be led to the throne, uh, if you're looking to sit at the feet of Christ and adore Him, this is a wonderful book to, uh, to get. And what I, I'm hoping to do as often as I recommend a book to you is, uh, is just to, to read aloud something from the book to give you a sense for, uh, for how the book reads. Before I do that, I want to tell you, too, the chapters are, are really short, and uh, they begin with, uh, with him uh, just in a page or two, 
laying out what, what it is he's talking about. He, he kind of tells you, here's the thing. Uh, but then uh, he has, in the next section, uh, application. Uh, he, so he, he'll go through several reasons why it matters, right? That's always very helpful, and the Puritans were, were good about that. Uh, so here's, here's an example. This is in the application section uh, about Christ's glory, how glorious Christ is. Uh, and the application section is always where, where the best stuff is with the Puritans. He says, Christ is worthy of our love and delight. He ravishes God's heart, and will He not ravish our hearts? Surely He alone is worthy of our precious affections. May the Lord direct our hearts into the love of Christ. Our hearts, love, and delight ought to meet with the heart of God in this most blessed object. He who left God's bosom for us ought to be embraced by us. So, uh, good stuff there. I, there was one other I think I wanted to read. Um, uh, he, he comes after us ministers. He says, they must set Christ before their people. It is the minister's calling to woo and win souls to Christ by presenting Him in all His excellence so that hearts are ravished with His beauty and charmed into His arms. That's what I'm hoping we can do in the study of Hebrews here. Um, yeah, just all good stuff. He says, if we know Christ, we know enough to save and comfort our souls. Many educated philosophers are in hell, while many illiterate Christians are in heaven. Uh, so an encouragement to pursue Christ. Anyways, uh, it, it makes an excellent devotional. You can read a chapter in about 15 minutes, and it's got all of this encouragement to meditate on Christ and to, uh, to worship Him. And so, uh, excellent resource there. And what I'm going to do, uh, I'll order some of these this week and have them on the table, hopefully by next Sunday, and, uh, and they'll be available there if you don't have them and would like to get them. So, okay, with that in mind, let's take a look at Hebrews. Again, the, the book of Hebrews, one of the things that is so wonderful about the book of Hebrews is that it models for us how to read Scripture. Uh, remember, the author of Hebrews has access to the Old Testament, uh, he probably has access to some of what we today know as the New Testament. Uh, and what he's going to do is he's, he takes Christ, and immediately, you'll see in a minute, he puts him on a pedestal, and the entire book is going to be one of turning our gaze to Christ. And he's going to do that by looking back through the earthly ministry of Christ into the Old Testament and understanding that person and work, that earthly ministry, what we are told in the gospel accounts in the New Testament, he's going to interpret that person and his work by means of the Old Testament. As the Old Testament anticipated Christ and pointed us towards Christ in so many different ways, uh, that Christ has now come. And the author of Hebrews wants us to recognize that He's come, and also uh, to, to gaze upon Him. Uh, he's setting Christ at the center and saying, look at Christ. Uh, and he's, he's teaching us all of the blessings and benefits that are ours in Christ. And so, with that in mind, like I said, he, uh, unlike a typical New Testament letter, uh, he jumps right in and in uh, exalted language tells us who Christ is and really, in a sense, tells us where he, the author, is going in this book, in this letter. Uh, what he later, in, towards the end of the, the book, calls an exhortation. The whole thing, uh, the book of Hebrews, is an exhortation. That is uh, a kind of sermon. 
Listen to what he says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs." We, uh, you know, this is one of those where I didn't, I, I didn't finish preparing this week. Uh, I, I just kept preparing and preparing and preparing, and it just felt like I was in free fall. You just keep seeing things and more things and more things. Uh, and so, uh, as I've said, part of what we're doing in, in Sunday school when we, we do Bible study like this is not only to, to feed ourselves, uh, for me to feed you, uh, from the Word, but for me to, to show you how to feed yourself so that you can pick the Word of God up and study it yourself. There's, uh, there's a, a lot of different ways that we, we, we take Scripture in, that we come to know it. Uh, and it's important that you understand those various ways and that you're utilizing all of them. And so I encouraged you last week, and I'll encourage you again this week, read the book of Hebrews all the way through this week. Uh, if, if that's uh, an easy enough task, do it several times. Reading through Scripture quickly, large amounts of Scripture, gives you a familiarity to the whole. Uh, you know, there's, there's a sense in which you, you really, you're not going to find it very easy to pick up any one passage, read it, and interpret it, to begin to apply it, if you're not familiar with the whole of Scripture. Uh, but you don't become familiar with the whole of Scripture by doing what we call Bible study proper, where you take a verse or a line or a word and you just slowly grind through this thing. That's a different discipline for Scripture. Uh, but if you were to approach the whole of Scripture that way and start in Genesis 1, uh, you would die of old age somewhere in Genesis, right? Uh, you just, you're not going to make much headway in terms of getting to know the whole. So, for example, you guys have heard me do the, the David and Goliath thing many times, right, where we read that narrative of David and Goliath, and in it we recognize Christ in all the details. But you can't recognize Christ in all the details of that narrative if you're not familiar with Christ, who He is and what He's done and, and the language Scripture uses about Him that is there in the, the David and Goliath text so that you, you recognize it, right? So I want to encourage you, be reading Hebrews all the way through. Another way that we, we come to know God's Word is by Bible study, right? Where we also, we slow down and we read things very carefully and we meditate on them. Uh, the, the method of Bible study I was taught at seminary, uh, which is an effective method of Bible study, begins with observation. Uh, we had a, an assignment. It's famous among Dallas uh, graduates, Dallas Seminary, where I went to school. Uh, it's, it's famous, and the professor himself, uh, who's just prof, uh, Howard Hendricks, who's gone on to be with the Lord, uh, the, the first assignment in the class is Acts 1-8. He says, I want you to make 100 observations. Uh, bring that to class with you the next period. And you show up with your 100 observations, 
and he says, don't turn them in. I want you to go make another hundred observations and come back. You do that three times before he finally says, okay, what have you got? Let's talk, right? And his point is, we don't ever observe nearly enough. We're just not trained. We've not uh, taught ourselves or been taught the discipline of observing. We move so quickly into trying to interpret that we we don't just soak in the details, right? And that's where so much, uh, and it's true of any passage of Scripture you, you apply yourself to, Bible study requires a lot of slow, patient reading and observation. You don't need answers yet. Observation is, is about seeing what's there and maybe even asking questions, right? We're not worried with answering them yet. We, we want to know, why did he use that word? What does that word mean? How do these things fit together, right? And so, you know, if we could make 300 observations on Acts 1.8, and I don't, I'm not sure what the quality of the 300 were, uh, but, but we all did our homework, right? Um, we could spend months in the first four verses of Hebrews. And so let's take, let's just, we're not going to spend months in it this Sunday, maybe next, and then we're, we're moving on. But let's look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, uh, you don't need to know Greek in order to have a, a fruitful study of God's Word in English, but it helps, right? It, it, particularly for those of us who are in the ministry, Pastor Nathan and I, our denomination requires us to be proficient uh, in order to be ordained, and we have to demonstrate that when we go through our exams. So it's helpful. I'm going to, I'm doing it in my own study during the week, and so that stuff's going to come to the surface as we, we work through the text. But I I pause here to tell you we'll be doing that, but also to encourage you. I don't want, by telling you about the Greek, I don't want you to feel like the study of God's Word is out of reach if you don't know Greek. It's very much in reach. Uh, Typically, when the Greek reveals something to us that wasn't particularly well conveyed in the English, it's going to shade what we're reading, what we understand. It's going to give us some insight, but it's not going to completely change the meaning uh, in a radical way. Uh, so, nonetheless, I'll, I'll point some things out. Uh, so, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What are some observations that you, uh, you would make here in this first verse? I, I sprung that on you, but uh, I, we'll, we'll get warmed up to it. Graham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really helpful insight, right? There, there's a continuity. Now, we're not going to, as tempting as it is, we're not going to go from that observation and launch into what that means and why it's important, but when you're doing Bible study, you should write these things down, right? Make a note of that, uh, and if I was R.C. Sproul, I'd have a big uh, chalkboard behind me, and I would probably be diagramming already, but I would be making note of that observation, right? Because it's a really important observation. I think it's, it's at the very heart of what the author of Hebrews is getting at and why he opens this way. What else? A frequency. 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, this many times and many ways, uh, many times is a single Greek word, many ways is a, a, another single Greek word, many ways is pretty well translated, but many times it, it's difficult to quite convey the meaning of this Greek word. Uh, it implies uh, an off-again, on-again, a, a, a sort of fragmented quality, uh, not necessarily applying, implying that there was something wrong with it, but compared to what we're going to see in verse 2, it, it was, though sufficient to accomplish its purposes, deficient compared to how God has spoken to His people now, right? Uh, so, long ago, uh, now and again, off and on, and also in a lot of different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What else? Yeah, past tense, right? Uh, I, I don't want to push all the way through to this observation and insist on there, there being an equivalency, but there's a, a little bit of a once upon a time to the opening of the book here, isn't there? Right? Uh, and so, long ago, uh, at many times, in many ways, God spoke past tense to our fathers by the prophets. For you grammar nerds, uh, grammatical observations are a gold mine, Right? Uh, if you remember, like, the parts of speech and how to identify them, there's all kinds of important stuff that you need to, to pick up on. Um, I learned English grammar by taking foreign language, uh, particularly at seminary. What else? Uh, yeah, we're not done with the sentence. That's right. We're going to keep going into verse 2 in a minute. Liz, was that you? Yeah, he spoke by the prophets. He spoke by the prophets. Yeah. Uh, there's, we can already begin to, begin to feel, can't we, the, the contrast that he's setting up. Long ago, he did this, and, and we're, it would be perfectly natural for him to say, but now, and we're going to see that in verse 2, and so it's important that we recognize that it was by the prophets. There's some disagreement among the commentators about what he means by prophets here. Is he talking about the specific prophecy that we find in the Old Testament. Is prophets here a, a catchphrase for all of the Old Testament? Uh, which prophets is it, etc.? But ultimately, I don't think we need to make that decision. Uh, it's enough to say that he, this is who he spoke through in the past, is the prophets. What, of, what else? What other observations? Yeah, yeah. The, the difficulty there is, and, and I've, I went through and I checked a dozen different major translations. Uh, in the Greek, the, the possessive's not there. He spoke to the fathers, and it's not there in front of son either. In these last days, verse 2, he has spoken to us by a son. Uh, and we'll talk about why he may have composed it that way. The hour is obviously implied. The community to whom he's writing He's not talking about our earthly fathers in the sense of who we descended from. Obviously, he's talking about those, those uh, fathers in the faith, right? And those are their fathers. It's legitimate that the translators have put that possessive in here. Um, but yeah, there's an identity, right? Uh, that, that there's, uh, it wasn't the whole world in a sense in the Old Testament, but it was our fathers, uh, it was, so, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the rest. What else? In many ways, 
Yeah. Yeah, the... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, John Owen could probably, you know, write 10,000 pages uh, surveying all the ways that, uh, that God has spoken in the past, in the Old Testament. Uh, and so we, you know, just to, to survey some of those ways, right, how has he spoken? Well, he's spoken through the prophets, where he says to the prophet, say this, right? Uh, but he's spoken in, through the prophets, uh, like with Ezekiel, where he says to Ezekiel, uh, I want you to, to bind yourself and lay on your right side and cook your meals over human feces for six months, right? Ezekiel has a particular reaction to that. Uh, God relaxes the requirement to animal feces. Um, and so there's, uh, that was God speaking, though, uh, through the prophet uh, in, in a sort of uh, um, play that he was to perform out in public. Uh, there's, God speaks in so many different ways to His people in the Old Testament. So, um, I, I heard lots of other people speaking up. Who else? Yeah, that's right. There's both a continuity and a discontinuity, right? He's, he's going to come to this discontinuity in a minute, but really the entire book of Hebrews is him looking at the ways that God spoke in the Old Testament and pointing to Christ as the, the one about whom God was speaking, right? Uh, so yeah, there's a continuity as well. Yeah, yeah, the word spoke seems both authoritative and personal. Really, verbs of speaking, there's, there's a really, like, central element to that in God's revelation, isn't there? Uh, in Genesis, He speaks creation into existence. It's by His Word that He creates. And John is going to open his gospel by referring to Christ as the Logos, the Word. Uh, so, Christ is the living Word, and we have the written Word, and if you, if you grew up in the evangelical church, you've heard that language of word so much, you know, this is the word, uh, the word of God, and Jesus is the, the word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, etc. Uh, that it, it might be losing its, its edge, but Scripture, God reveals in Scripture very creatively His purposes through this idea of speech uh, and, and words, Right? So yeah, we have this verb of speaking. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What, there's something else about that, that language right there that, uh, that I think familiarity makes it difficult for us to see. What else could we say about spoke? God spoke. It's God that it's God doing it? That's right. So that, that gets back to the authority, right? It's not just the action that bears authority, but the fact that God is the one doing it. Uh, I think, too, we don't want to miss, and this is where I think our familiarity gets us in trouble. God spoke. He didn't have to. He wasn't bound to. He was neither morally nor ethically obligated to speak apart from 
the sense in which he obligated himself, right? It was only in order to do what he promised he would do, and you say, well, when did he promise that he would speak? Because that seems to get back behind even creation, doesn't it? And in fact, it does. It's the covenant of redemption, that, that covenant that the Father, Son, and Spirit made with one another to save a people. That, that covenant of redemption takes place outside of time. Uh, it's an eternal covenant. And it's in that covenant that the, the members, Father, Son, and Spirit, covenanted with one another to do the work of salvation. And how does God save? He saves by speaking. He created originally by speaking, and He's going to restore that creation by speaking. And the word He spoke when He created was, let there be light, and the word that He speaks in recreation is Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's a a rich, rich mine that we could go down and just spend ages in, just, just centered on this action of God in speaking. So, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So, we've got continuity, we've got discontinuity, we've got this past tense. What else do we see here? There's something about those two prepositional phrases, the order that it's to our fathers by the prophets instead of by the prophets to our fathers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, more personal, I think. Yeah. One of the things, too, that you see in the original language is word order matters in a different way than it does in English. So uh, they didn't have exclamation points uh, or bold fonts. And so one of the ways that they would do the same thing, they would accomplish the same effect, is they would take the words that were, they really wanted you to, to latch on to for a sec, and they would throw them to the front. Uh, and they would kind of, it, it, would, it would be in contrast to the usual construction, the usual syntax that they would have used, but it was not breaking a rule. And so they would take this thing that you would expect in, you know, this position in the sentence, and they bring it all the way to the front. And in Greek, this, uh, this verse starts at many times and in many ways, long ago, right? And it goes on. Uh, so there's an emphasis on the many times and the many ways. But yeah, paying attention to the prepositional phrases like to our fathers and by the prophets are important ways to to make sure we're following the logic of the author. What else? Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a really important observation. Notice it's God who's, who's the subject of the verbs in the first half of, of this passage this morning. It's, it's, and, and the use of God here refers to the Father uh, within the Trinity, And so, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke, subject, the one doing the action, but in these last days, He, again, God, the Father, has spoken, the one doing the action, 
whom he appointed, talking about the son now, but it's the father still doing the action. The father appointed the son, the heir of all things, through whom he also, he created the world. This he here is still the father. The father created the world through Jesus Christ, through the son. Uh, and it's in verse 3 that it switches to Christ, and it's going to be exclusively Christ who's the subject of the verbs through the rest of these first four verses. So yeah, in verse 1, it's, it's God who is doing the action. Yeah, yeah. so it feels a little bit like Genesis 1 too, doesn't it? Because Genesis 1 is the same way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not a treatise on theology proper, right? It assumes the person. Uh, it assumes God the Father. Uh, of course, God is going to reveal so much about himself throughout history and in his word, but right out of the gate, just boom, God. What else in verse 1? Billy? Yeah, 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 and we'll, we'll definitely get that in verse 2, right, when he, he turns to that contrast. No, 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 we're, we're moving at a glacial pace, yes. Yeah, that's right, yeah, long ago, uh, and so it, it, uh, it's not simply the past, as if it could have merely been last year, uh, or it was just last generation, but this long ago. Uh, yeah, you, you've got the 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testaments, right, uh, before Christ comes, through whom, as we'll see in the next verse, God is speaking uh, in these last days. Uh, but also, too, that, that God spoke over the, the period of quite a long time in the Old Testament period, there's also, getting back to that many times, I told you is, is more, it implies more of a fragmentary thing. We, what we often get in narrative, like in the, the narrative of Abraham, is that God meets Abraham and speaks with him face to face. And then in the next chapter, God meets with Abraham and speaks to him face to face. And in the next chapter, God meets with Abraham and speaks to him face to face. But in the details of those chapters, we find out it's been 25 years since God spoke to Abraham right? It's not as if Abraham walked with God in the cool of the afternoon, day in and day out. Uh, there's a, this fragmentary, fragmentary quality to it that would have itself in this long ago kind of been picked up, right? Uh, God did not, was not constantly always revealing himself directly to his people, uh, certainly not the way he was doing it in the Exodus account, for example. He wasn't always doing that. We, I, I love this. We could just keep doing this in verse 1. I promise you, we've not even begun. We're like on the surface still of verse 1. We could just keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this. But we, we don't, we don't, we can't, I don't know, maybe we could be in Hebrews for years. Uh, maybe nobody would complain about that, but we probably shouldn't. Um, and so let's, uh, let's look at verse 2, and we won't spend nearly as much time in 2. We'll, I, I think you've You've begun to see my point about observation, right? Uh, there is a lot to observe in something as brief as verse 1 here. 
Uh, even though you don't know Greek, you can get at some of those things, at least become aware of what's happening in the Greek. If you'll look at uh, a, a, um, uh, a spectrum of English translations, because some of the, the things, uh, most of it's pretty straightforward, and the translations all more or less read the same because there's not a lot of questions right there, but then occasionally it's difficult, and the translators have to make a decision. And across multiple translations, they'll make different decisions. And so where you see the translations not necessarily agreeing with one another and how they chose to translate it, that's usually uh, revealing that behind that particular word or phrase, there was a difficulty that the translators were having to make a decision about, right? And so, and you'll see, you'll get a sense of what that was by comparing the different ways they tried to translate it. Okay, uh, verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us, by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, what observations? What do we see here in verse 2? Yeah, last days uh, suggest not just then versus now, but that there's something particular about the now, right? Uh, and, and we see that that connects to son, doesn't it? There, because of the contrast between the way he spoke then and, now he sp- and how he speaks now, and these being the last days, suggests what about the, the quality of the son as one who reveals God? He's, he's supreme. He's supreme temporally, and we're going to find out as we keep reading, he's supreme qualitatively, right? There is no one who comes after him and no one who is greater than him, particularly in the role of being the one through whom or by whom God speaks. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing too, and this takes a a lot of exposure to Scripture to begin to sense these things, but last days is technical language. Uh, When it comes to redemptive history, the people of God have been using the language of last days or age for quite some time. Uh, It it has a very particular meaning, Uh, and in, in the context of the people of God in history, last days refers to uh, to the end of redemptive history, the point at which God will come and judge. So, last days carries a, a very heavy connotation of both the final judgment of God and the final salvation of God. But it says these last days, mm-hmm. indicating the appearance. That's right, yep. Yeah, it's not in the last days as though those days might still be ahead of us. It's these last days. The author situates himself in that context historically, uh, himself and therefore us, right? We, together with the author of Hebrews, in in all of redemptive history, we belong to the last days. Taken together with the um, as spoken, which I suggest present perfect tense, I think. It is in English. Yeah, I'd have to double check the Greek. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. What else in verse 2? You said it is in English. What is, what is the verb? I'd have to double check. What's, what's that? It's an aorist. It's an aorist. Okay, so 
in, in Greek, the aorist tense is usually translated as a past tense, um, but it's, uh, it's, it doesn't work exactly like the English past. A lot of times it doesn't have any temporal meaning whatsoever. Um, it's a difficult tense that the theologians argue about, <coughs> New Testament scholars argue about. Yeah, so, um, you know, what do we do with this language is the question of uh, appointed, for example. What was there, uh, when we read through whom also he created the world, we know there was a time before the world was created, uh, and then there was a moment in which he created, and now the, the created world exists. Uh, what do we do with appointed? Was there a time before he was appointed the heir of all things? And this is one of the difficulties in Christology, uh, isn't it? Because Christ is, is pre-existent. He's the Word of God, the Son of God. Uh, his begottenness is itself eternal. Christ is begotten of the Father before all worlds, right? Before all things. Uh, and so Christ, there's no moment at which the Son of God is not begotten of the Father, and then His begottenness starts, right? Uh, it's eternal, uh, that begottenness. There are some obvious things we can point to that aren't eternal. Christ's incarnation is not eternal in history past. There, there is a point at which, up until that point in history, there was no incarnation. Christ, Christ is not eternally incarnated, right? Uh, if you like Mexican food, like carne asada, right? Carne is flesh, right? The incarnation is the enfleshment of Christ, so there's, there's a point in history prior to the, the Holy Spirit causing Mary to conceive that there is no enfleshment, no incarnation of Christ. Uh, so he wasn't, and then he was. When it comes to some things, though, it's difficult to know what the author intends. Uh, and so what do we do with whom he appointed the heir of all things? Uh, and briefly, what I would suggest as we read it in the context of the covenant of redemption uh, which is, is where we would understand this appointment occurred, which is outside of time. Uh, I, I know it's, it's, it's not difficult. It's impossible for us to conceive what it means to be outside of time. There are helpful ways to talk about it uh, that maybe get us closer to understanding it so that when we say that God stands outside of time, uh, what we mean is that all moments in history are now to God simultaneously. Uh, it's one way that we, we express that. Uh, it's helpful. I still don't feel like I know what, God, what, what it means for God to be outside of time. 
Um, and so it's difficult. But when was Christ appointed the heir of all things? Uh, we would argue it was in that covenant of redemption. Um, so that, for example, when we go to Psalm 2 and Psalm 100, Psalm 2 is what, uh, what the author of Hebrews is referencing here. When we go to Psalm 2, we see that God has already said to the Son, this is who you are and this is what I'm doing. It hasn't happened in history yet, but the appointment has been made. Uh, and so this stands outside of time, I would argue. Um, but the author of Hebrews is going to use language to describe Christ's uh, person and work that often cause us to pull up a little short and say, wait a minute, which is this? It, has this always been true of the Son of God throughout all of, of I mean, out, even outside of time, right? Before even time itself came into existence, uh, was this true of him? Or does it become true of him? in his earthly ministry? And sometimes the answer is yes. Uh, we, we need to be reminded that we break these things up into bits and pieces so that we can understand them and talk about them. But, uh, but the discrete units that make it helpful for us to talk about them aren't actually discrete. Uh, that, that there is a unity of, of being and a unity of purpose in, uh, in the triune God that ultimately defies our discrete units, right? So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what's, what's the word that uh, the, the academics use to describe that? It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a condescension. It's a, um, that's a really good word and one they often use, but it's not the one I'm, I'm reaching for right now. Uh, no, that wasn't it either. <laughs> what, what, what was that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's concessive. That's the word I was looking for. It, it's a concession. God concedes to the fact that because we are finite and He is infinite, that we cannot ultimately comprehend Him. And, but it's really important that we understand this. The ways in which He does reveal Himself to us as finite creatures are true. His concessional speech, uh, what sometimes in the Old Testament is called, for example, anthropomorphisms, where God is spoken of like He's a human, that speech is true even though it's a concession, uh, even though it stoops down, uh, or as, as Calvin is, is often quoted as saying, God, God speaks to us using baby talk, right, uh, when he describes himself to us, because we, we're not capable of comprehending him ultimately. So. It's incredibly merciful and gracious that he does this. It is, it is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how unloving would we... Would we uh, think a parent is if their little one asks them a question about how something works, and they were like, what's the matter with you, you idiot? You, you can't understand this? No, the parent stoops, right? Sometimes literally gets down on a knee and says to the child, this is how this works. Uh, and when you answer the question, why is the sky blue, you're going to have to bring that down to your three-year-old's level. What you say hopefully is true, 
but it's probably not pitched at the PhD in physics, right? Uh, and that's what God does for us. The difference is our little ones can, can ultimately get there. We'll never, we will always be finite for all of eternity, and we'll never be able to comprehend the fullness and perfection of the triune God. Our knowledge of Him will always be mediated knowledge. We will never know Him as He knows Himself. Yeah. He spoke to us. The two us is important, too. And I, I'm, I'm just wondering how encompassing you think that is because we physically hear the word Jesus on the, on the you know, Sermon on the Mount, but then the Holy Spirit speaks the word to us also. So could both of those apply? In this context, um, speak to us. Yeah, so we, I think we understand the author of Hebrews to be addressing revelation. Uh, and so uh, the, the office of the Spirit in revelation ceased with the, the apostolic age. Uh, so we wouldn't bring the Spirit into it here. Uh, it's better to think of the Spirit as reminding us now of what Jesus said, and helping us to understand it and believe it, right? Doing that work in us. It's a subtle difference, um, but, but an important one. Uh, this, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by a son. Uh, Christ is the ultimate and last word. Ultimate in quality, right? But it's, it's interesting that Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else before we wrap up? Our time is up today. Oh, Craig, sorry. Yeah, yeah, whom he appointed the heir of all things, uh, or uh, is that, no, it's uh, through whom also he created the world is how that's translated. Um, and world in Greek there is aeons, uh, which uh, world here, if you read it the way John uses it, is probably helpful. Uh, aeons here, uh, it's, it's a bigger word than world. Uh, it's all things, everything that exists, right? Through whom also he created everything that exists, everything physical, everything spiritual, everything on this world and throughout all of the limits of all of creation, everything that exists, including time. All of time and space was created by, by Him. That's the idea with aeons. Okay, well, clearly we're not done with the first four verses. We're still just making an observation, and, uh, and we're only through the second verse. Uh, I want to encourage you this week to uh, read all the way through the book really quickly. Uh, one of the things that can be hard about that is you keep asking questions while you're reading. It slows you down. The best thing you can do is keep a pencil and some paper there. Write the question down really quick and forget it. Move on. Right? You can come back to the question later. Those questions become good, fertile soil for Bible study itself. But for reading, read all of the book of Hebrews as quickly as you can. Uh, as often as you can. Also, as a separate discipline this week, I would encourage you to just meditate on the first four verses. One that we didn't discuss today, uh, a discipline in Bible uh, intake, 
coming to, to own Scripture, to know it in your heart and your mind, is, uh, is memorization. And uh, these first four verses are worthy of memorization. The ESV is perfectly acceptable. Memorize these first four verses, and you'll have them to meditate on anywhere you find yourself, with or without a Bible in your hands. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for, uh, for your word. We thank you for the glory of Christ for the beauty of Christ, and we pray that, uh, that this week, as we, we spend time in the book of Hebrews, uh, that you would meet us there by your Spirit, that your Spirit would indeed remind us of who Christ is and what Christ has done, uh, that your Spirit would increasingly uh, place Christ before us as the most desirable person, the most desirable thing in all of existence, and that we would be ready and willing to give up everything to know Him and to, to have him, to pursue him. Father, we pray that you would do this in us and for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.